I'm Dr. Megan Corredo, and welcome to Real Stories, a podcast that features the narratives of trauma survivors, professionals, and community leaders. Real Stories provides a platform for guests with diverse life experiences to voice and honor their unique narratives. During today's episode, we will be speaking with Ashley Franks. Ashley, thank you so much for joining us. I'm happy to be here, Megan. Thank you for having me. So can you tell us a little about who you are? Oh, such a a loaded question. Um, I guess when I I tell people a little bit about myself, um, I start with my academic background. So in in the myriad of academic experiences. So I have a bachelor's degree in drama performance with minors in English and sociology. And I have master's degrees in law and social work. Um, And at present, I am a strategic finance consultant for nonprofits that want to maximize their mission impact. Mm -hmm. So that is both my academic and professional uh, professional identity. Um, Some some things about my personal identity. I am first generation American. My parents are originally from Jamaica in the Caribbean. So um, that is a big part of my identity. I'm also from New York City. So that certainly shapes a lot of who I am. And those are just some of the touch points that I'll I'll start us out with. We'll certainly talk more about uh, me over the course of the podcast. Okay. Can you tell us more about what you do? Absolutely. So um, like I mentioned, I am a strategic finance consultant for nonprofit organizations. And, you know, for some folks, that sounds confusing. It's like, well, what does that mean to uh, be a strategic partner to nonprofit organizations, particularly through the lens of finance? So basically in my work, we as consultants partner with nonprofit organizations who want to both understand and bolster their financial health. Um, to to maximize their mission impact. So like, yes, I use finance as a lens for my work, but it's only because, you know, finance is a means to an end for all nonprofit organizations. It is a means to delivering on our really amazing mission. It is a means to maximizing our really amazing programs. And it essentially affects the real lives of, of people who need nonprofits the most. So um, we start with finance because, you know, you need the money to, to achieve the mission. Um, but in my work, we certainly go to all the other places that finance leads us, operations, staff retention, uh, board management, leadership engagement, all of those things. So we like to say um, at my organization, which is Nonprofit Finance Fund, that we merely use finance as a compass to lead us to all the other things that finance impacts within a nonprofit organization. So we may start with the financial analysis with Mm. our clients, but then that may uncover a lot of financial trauma that that organization has dealt with. And then we'll sit there as long as we need to before we like move into like, okay, well, what do we do with this financial information? Like maybe we just need to sit there and talk about the trauma um, surrounding finances for that organization, because finance is often a traumatizing topic for nonprofit organizations who either are cash strapped, feel like they don't have enough, worry about keeping their doors open from month to month. So we also create room to talk about those things and how we can use finance to make those uh, concerns less jarring, less scary. So Certainly lots goes on in in the world of a strategic finance consultant, but that's just some of it. 
You mentioned when you were sharing um, with us about some of your degrees that you've earned, which you have uh, managed to earn a whole lot of different academic <laughs> degrees from very sp- prestigious um, colleges and universities. So congratulations. I'm curious. I'm curious about um, the connection between um, your degree in law and social work and maybe how that applies to what you're doing now, or maybe it doesn't apply. Yeah, sure. I'll say that, you know, at this point in time, some of my degrees feel segregated from the work I'm doing now, but will certainly put me on the path to the work that I want to do in the future and, and, you know, stop me from getting ahead on the agenda and if we're going to talk about future goals later. But um, basically, I, I got into the social work field because I had lived experience as a client of nonprofit organizations. Um, my first contact with the nonprofit sector was as a youth in foster care. And so naturally, I had a lot of contact with human services organizations. Um, and I think that, you know, as a client, you have a super unique perspective because how an organization does or does not deliver their services has visceral effects on your real life, your day-to-day, your ability to eat, your ability to have a roof over your head, your interpersonal relationships, your professional success, all of those things. I felt that, Um, you know, I felt whether an organization was delivering the best best services possible or whether they were, you know, not making as much investment in their programs, which then meant they weren't making as much investment in my real life. So I felt all of those things firsthand and was super inspired to make a change within the sector. I didn't know what that change would look like, but I knew I wanted to be in the sector. I always had a really critical view of the system, again, because it impacted my life. And I was like, well, you know, I better get in there and try to change it. So that's um, some of what Mm -hmm. led me, I, I would say a big part of what led me to social work. And then once I got into social work school at the University of Pennsylvania, Um, I realized that there was um, a heavy emphasis on clinical social work, which is absolutely needed in our world, in our sector, in our field. Um, But I I felt that there wasn't a lot of space for the folks who took a bird's eye view of things. Um, When it's like dismantle Mm -hmm. the systems altogether, you know, not treat the symptoms of the systems. Um, So that turned out to be a very frustrating experience for me. And I also found that in my work, like in my field placements and my internships, that there was a lot of red tape for social workers who wanted to impact systems, it, which you're just not seen as experts. Our field is still establishing a collective identity. I felt like I couldn't make the change I wanted to make in the spaces I was in. And particularly in my first year of my social work program, I was at a law firm and I often was in the courtroom and had to observe the formalities of the courtroom and if you've ever been in a courtroom as a social worker, you know that like you are not the person that people turn to when they want an expert opinion. Like certainly you're there and certainly you contribute, but the bottom line is that what the attorney says and what the judge says goes. Um, and so that was a line of red tape that that really motivated me um, to go and get more education that would allow me to be in the room and at the table, really affecting change at the systemic level. So, and, and mm-hmm. you know, I, I neglected to mention that one of my long-term goals, again, like I said, if I'm getting ahead of myself, you just let me know, but um, one of my long-term goals, <laughs> amazing, one of my long-term goals, you know, it, it all it, it all comes around full circle. One of my long-term goals is to establish a nonprofit organization that provides educational support, particularly post-secondary educational support to youth in foster care or aging out of foster care. And in the child welfare space, 
almost everything that really matters. Now, you know, I, I want to be careful about my, my word choice. Um, sometimes it can feel like all of the things that really matter take place in the courtroom and all of the work that happens outside of the courtroom is leading up to the court date and what happens there. Um, like the, 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 the judge and the child advocate attorneys in that space have so much agency over a dependent youth's life. It is wild. So I realized like if I'm going to be in this space and I plan to be a leader, executive director, or CEO in this space, I'd better have some legal education. I'd better be able to cross the red tape. So that is what ultimately led me to pursue a master's in law. I knew that I did not want to be at the bar of the court litigating, but that I wanted to be able to engage in the conversations that were happening, again, at the systemic level. And a part of systems is the law. Um, and that was a barrier for me as a social worker. And I wanted to knock down that barrier. And I found that you know, studying at Penn Law, a super prestigious law school, was very helpful to that end. So here we are now um, as a consultant. Like I said, it may seem like some of my experience, my uh, ac academic experience is segregated from what I do now, but it's really not. I am face-to-face -face with executive leaders every day in my work. I advise CEOs, CFOs, artistic directors, funders, foundations. Um, and so if I want to be a leader in this space, to be a thought part partner with leaders, is certainly putting me on the path to that end. So I'm not practicing law. That was never the plan. And I'm certainly not necessarily 100% using my law degree at this point in time, but I am doing work that is putting me on the path to be an executive director. And when I'm in that seat, certainly having knowledge of the laws that impact nonprofit finance, tax status, <laughs> operations, and just like knowing about the law more generally and how it impacts my clients, the clients that my organization serves, will be just invaluable. So, you know, so like you like you said at the beginning, I said this comes full circle. You just mentioned that, you know, I have a myriad academics, academic experiences and you asked how they all come together. And yeah, that's how. Mm. So we know that every individual, every community, every system has a story and every story includes both adversity and strength. Can you talk to us about some of the adversities that you face? Absolutely. Uh, where should I start? I'm a Black a woman. I was in foster care. Um, I grew up in poverty. So it's like, you know, which adversity? Um, I, you know, uh, Black women are the most marginalized uh, folks in the world. So I really got to think about like which, which adverse experience um, I feel like I want to amplify today because all of them were equally important in my life, but certainly we don't want to be here all day. Um, so yeah, I guess, I guess I'll, I'll focus on my experience in, in foster care. That was a, a very adverse experience. One that, um, one that predicts outcomes for me that were supposed to land me in jail or I was supposed to be homeless or not have graduated college or even be dead. So Certainly that, that was a, a very negative experience, um, particularly because when you are dependent on the government, you feel like a lot of your life is not yours. Like you have no sense of control over your life. Um, you don't get, decide, get to decide where you live at any given moment. You don't even get to decide where you go to school. Um, oftentimes you're forced to 
have visits with social workers, forced to go to therapy. It just feels like you are a puppet being pulled by so many different puppet mm -hmm. strings. And it is the most disempowering, one of the most disempowering experiences I've ever had in my entire life. And you can just imagine as, as a child, you want to, you know, test boundaries, explore the world, have some agency over your life. That's really when you're coming of age and starting to figure out who you are. Um, I had the state mm -hmm. telling me who I am and what I can do. Social workers telling me mm -hmm. who I am and what I can do. Judges telling me who I am and what I can do. So that was a very rough time in my life. And, you know, it's, it's paradoxical because though they control so much of your life, what you can and can't do, they don't provide all the support you need to thrive. So in many ways, the ball is back in your court to take care of yourself. So it's, it, it, again, it's like, it's an oxymoron because it's like, okay, you want to control everything about my life except for my basic needs. Like control that too. You know, like why am I hungry? Or why don't I, I have my basic needs now? Why don't I have sanitary napkins and I'm in high school? You know, so that always felt really frustrating is that my life felt like it was being controlled in so many ways by systems and people and things larger than me. But somehow those systems, things and people were not meeting my basic needs. So on one hand, I felt like I had no sense of control over my life. And certainly that has seeped into my adulthood. I find myself, you know, feeling compelled to be more controlling over things. And certainly it's something that I'm constantly aware of and constantly addressing so that it's not negatively impacting my life, but it's an impulse that's there. I feel like I have to have absolute control of everything because I fear that if I lose control, I'll go back to being that 10 year old girl who couldn't do anything for herself because everyone else had to say what was happening. So that's, there's that. But then, like I said, on the other side, not having my basic needs met meant that I had to become parentified very early on. I'm talking about I was 10, year, 10 years old trying to figure out how to meet some of my basic needs, how to get food on the table, um, how I was going to get to school. And, and that never stopped. Not even now. Um, I'm now 25 years old. And I always tell people, like, I feel like I live the life of a 40 year old, like just like where I am in my career, um, the home that I maintain, things that I'm all grateful for. But you know, we also recognize that lots of folks at 25 years old are not expected to be as independent as I've been and as I am. Um, and, and that started from a very young age because my basic needs were not being met. So you can imagine that I've been in a parental role since I was a child. I was a child parenting myself, um, walking myself through basic development. And certainly other folks contributed. Um, I don't think I'd be where I am if I didn't have natural mentors in school or in other spaces. But the, 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 the parenting that usually happens in the home, I lacked that. Um, it, so, so I had parents in the sense that the government was a, a parent over all my choices, except for where I'm going to get food from. Like you, you, you missed out on that part. Um, so that was like a really, really traumatizing experience. And I feel the effects of having been parentified very early on, um, having had no control or say over my life very early on, even now in my adulthood. Um, and, you know, it threatens to affect my relationships. It threatens to affect my self-esteem. It threatens to affect um, my success in my career. Um, thankfully, I am actively healing. Um, I, I like to be very transparent about the fact that I have not arrived. I have not transcended my traumas. I think that we often like to hear these stories and hear people say, I've come out on the other side completely. And, and I don't think that that's how trauma works. So um, I am actively healing every single day 
It is an active effort. It requires intentionality. It requires therapy. It requires sitting with myself. But, you know, I don't think that you ever truly recover from those kind of, kinds of experiences. So, you know, it's important for me to come here and be honest about that and uplift the folks who are listening in and say that, you know, there are folks who are in their dream job who are making good money who um, have amazing relationships, who are still fighting an internal battle every single day from adverse childhood experiences or even adverse adulthood experiences. So I just want to say that, you know, I see you, I hear you, and that you don't have to be fully healed at any point in your life as long as you're actively and intentionally working towards healing every day. Right. When we think about the term um, healing or have you healed, it's such a it's such an interesting way to think about like lifelong um, challenges, adversities, traumas that are always going to affect you. Um, I, I think part of that comes from like this medical model of where's the disease, uh, target it, treat it, and it's gone. Um, but it's really important for us to think about how are we, um, how are we communicating to people about the healing process as it relates to these adversities? Um, is it something that just goes away? No. Um, these things like impact the fabric of who we are, how we view the world, how we view ourselves. And something that you were mentioning, um, it made me think about this this idea of sanctuary trauma. So uh, Silver coined this term, sanctuary trauma. And then um, Sandy Bloom kind of um, took that term and, and ran with it. But it's this idea that uh, we go to these particular systems expecting support, expecting that our needs are going to be met only to find more trauma, only to find more powerlessness. Um, and it sounds like that was that was a really significant part of your own experiences um, as all these inner different systems kind of uh, were mm-hmm. controlling aspects of your life, but also um, not really supporting you in a healing journey. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, that, I'll say that, you know, I'm chewing on that. I'm chewing on that. That is, yes, that, that, I think that that encapsulates what I was experiencing and what I was feeling. So thank you for, for offering that framing. So can you share a few important positive moments or turning points in your story? Yeah, sure. I'll say that one of them most recently and immediately, um, was landing my dream job. You know, I think that everything that I had been through up, up until this point, has led me here. I, I don't think that I would approach my work the way I do if I hadn't been through adverse experiences. Um, but also, like, I was tired of fighting. I was so tired of fighting. I I, I would say, like, God, can you please give me a break? <laughs> I feel like I've been through so much. I have enough hurt to last me a lifetime. Like, when am I going to get a break? Uh, I just remember feeling that, um, you know, I, I feel like I fought through high school. I was in foster care then. And then I fought through college because I didn't have the resources I needed to, to really be successful in college, but I made it through that. And then I fought through being a black person at an Ivy league school. Um, and then I had uh, got a job that wasn't really making me happy. And I, I, was, I just couldn't see that the light at the end of the tunnel at that point, I just felt like it was adverse experience after adverse experience. Um, though I felt like on my end that I was doing everything I was supposed to do to win. Um, and certainly I had some smaller wins, you know, um, but on the whole, I was unhappy. I really was unhappy. I felt like, you know, it, it was a constant push and a constant fight every single day that I woke up. If it wasn't one thing, it was the other. So um, to have landed a, a job where you spend most of your waking hours 
in truth um, that allows me to do the work that I want to do and impact the lives I want to impact. And that's going to put me on the path to fulfilling my life's mission, like what I believe God has put me on this earth to do, um, makes me nothing short of like fulfilled, elated, happy, all of those things. That that for me was a culminating moment in my life. Like everything I went through made sense. It clicked. And I felt like I got my break. You know, I felt like I wasn't for once worried about finances. I wasn't for once waking up miserable to go to where I was going, whether it be to class or work. Um, so that was a really positive, it was and still is a very positive experience in my life. And, mm-hmm. you know, I highly encourage everyone to do work that they love because you spend so much of your time working. Yes. It's really important <laughs> to have a job that makes you feel fulfilled. And like you, you are contributing something to the world every day, whatever that looks like for you. Right. Um, so that's, that's one positive experience. What's another one? Oh, another one. We're just talking about positive experiences generally, right? Yeah. Or like turning, turning point, positive experiences in my life. Mm -hmm. I'll say traveling. Traveling was, was and continues to be a positive turning point in my life because, you know, I grew up in Harlem and my world was very small where I grew up, as it is for a lot of kids who grew up in the hood. You know, you can't really see outside of, you know, the the couple streets that you know about and the four walls of your school, Um, especially just when you, you grow up in poverty, like, your worldview is super, super limited because you're often in survival mode. Like I, I remember going to college and taking Spanish for um, a couple of years and a part of my Spanish course was uh, a geography component. And I broke down having to do that geography component because I just, I could not even conceptualize a world map in that way. I'm just like, I can barely tell you about New York state and you want me to tell you about where all the Spanish speaking countries are like, like, you know, like I can't do that for you. Um, and I had a meltdown, like my, my worldview was just so limited. My experiences traveling were so limited at that point. And so being able to, you know, travel internationally. And at this point I've been to over 20 countries, um, it expanded my worldview so much. And Mm -hmm. I felt like I was doing something that so many people from my community are not able to do and have not been able to do for generations and generations because we are just trying to make it day to day and travel is so inaccessible. It it can be expensive. I think there are some people who are like, it's not expensive. If you just save the money you use to go to the club, you could travel. Um, But that everybody's not going to the club. Some people are just trying to feed their three kids and travel is not even anywhere on the vision board in the near or far future. So mm-hmm. to come from where I come from and like be setting foot in Rome and, you know, in South Africa and Egypt mm. and Jamaica and Toronto, you name it, France, Spain, um, to, to be, to have my feet in those places. I could have never imagined that as that helpless 10 year old in foster care. I just don't even think that my vision for my life expanded that far. Mm. Um, I was just looking to the next day um, and travel allowed me to breathe. It allowed me to breathe and be present in a way that I'd never been present for. And even still, when I travel, I'm present in ways that I'm not generally present when I'm back at home on the grind working. So that has certainly been like a, a turning point in my life. It has exposed me to things I've never been exposed to. I've learned, you know, 
small words of different languages everywhere I go. Mm-hmm. I've learned things about world history. I've learned things about, you know, local history, the different places I've been. And it has been a stretching experience. One that like, I pray I, I get to give my kids. Um, and one that, you know, through my organization that I will establish, I hope to give to other youth in foster care who, you know, right now their, their day to day is how am I going to eat? But there's so much more out there for them. And I hope to be able to expose them to that. Mm, that's so powerful. Um, just to listen to you talk about um, kind of how controlled and constrained things were in your childhood and how you have actually been opening up doors for yourself, opening up new opportunities um, to expand your vision. It's just so exciting um, to listen to and to hear the enthusiasm in your voice um, as you also talk about supporting other people and opening their own doors too. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, that's, that's, that's what I think I'm here for. So thank you for the affirmation. Where do you see yourself in the future? Well, you know, this is why I was like, did I jump the gun earlier? But um, so certainly I'll just reiterate, you know, I hope within the next 10 years to be leading a nonprofit organization, uh, particularly one that helps youth in foster care graduate from college. Um, And I imagine providing that support in the form of fiscal scholarships, uh, internship connections, Uh, counseling, one-on-one mentorship, care packages, and more. I imagine it being like a a full suite of services coming through my organization. So that's one thing. But I also, you know, I think it's important to talk about, you know, where you imagine yourself personally, because, you know, in social work, we talk about the whole person and I'm certainly more than my work. So I imagine myself being happily married um, with beautiful children. It is one of my, my biggest aspirations to have children, especially since I feel like, you know, I was neglected in so much of my childhood. I think I have all this love uh, bursting at the seams inside of me that I, I hope to be able to pass on to my children. So that is certainly one of my biggest goals. And I, I'd even say my biggest goal and that, you know, some of my career aspirations um, are meant to help me be a better a family woman. So um, you know, if, if I had to choose it, they say, you know, you could only choose between you know, becoming a CEO and, and serving the youth you want to serve or being a parent, I choose being a parent. So um, it, it's, it's important for me to add all of those things into like my aspirations for the future and where I imagine myself, because all of those things are very important to me. So that is where I see myself in traveling, you know, doing public speaking engagements, um, certainly still consulting and yeah, well, we'll also see where where the path leads me, right? Because I think uh, I'll I may be saying some things now, and then certainly I'll discover I want to do more or additional things. So, yeah, that's where I see myself. I love that your vision for yourself is so multidimensional, and uh, knowing your drive, uh, knowing your tenacity, I know that you're going to make all of those things happen. I really, really appreciate that, and I receive that. I really do. <laughs> um. Yeah, so interesting to think about what our vision is for ourselves. Um, Sometimes, like certain times in our life, it's difficult to see past um, what we're going through right now. But being able to also say, you know what, Um, this is where I am now, but this is where I want to go can really be transformative and and motivating and empowering, too. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that kind of mission is what gets you up every day. Um, I, I think that 
every like you can come up against adversities that want to put you down every single day but when your why is greater than those adversities it keeps you going so that's why having vision for myself is important and particularly clear vision I think it's really important to give that's why you heard me say like I want to be a wife I want to be a mother I want to be a CEO not just you know I want to be happy and at peace like what does happiness and peace look like for me it looks like me having healthy happy children who I meet their basic needs but also like provide much more than that for them, a, a loving and healthy and happy home. So I think mm. when I wake up every day, I have those visions guiding me. And also when life is just trying to get me on my knees, I have to figure out a reason to keep going. And that that focus and those aspirations are being at the fore of my mind really keep me going. So absolutely. Yeah. Are there any favorite or life-changing resources that you want to share with listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, where do I start? I will say a book that changed my life. And, you know, I'll be totally honest. I am critical about self-help books. I think with them, you got to, like, take what you need and leave what you don't. Um, and a, a, a big portion of what you don't need might be throughout the whole book. Um, so you may find a sentence here or there that, that you like, but you know, the gems that are there could be life-changing. So I'll say one of the books that changed my life is Thinking Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Um, even up until recently, I used to sleep with a book um, by my bedside every single night because some of the exercises in the book challenge you to speak things into your life as if you already have them. And what that did for me, and, you know, some folks call it manifestation, you know, folks have, have different um, orientations about that. But for me, what it did was put me in um, an abundance mindset and in a mindset that I could have anything I want. As long as I act like I already have it, I work towards it, I do the things that are going to get me toward it, um, then I can, I can have it. So I would suggest that book for anyone who feels stuck. Or people who, who don't feel stuck, they feel motivated and they want to, you know, keep up the momentum. I think that Thinking Grow Rich is a great book with some practical application. There's a, an aspect of it where you write down your goals. Like you can do them quarterly, yearly, biannually, however you want to do it. And for me, that held me accountable um, to my goals. You know, I mentioned a couple lofty ones here, right? And I need to be actively... <laughs> Uh, taking steps to work towards that. And like, what does it look like to be CEO? What do I need to do to be a CEO? What rooms do I need to be in? And so what the book Thinking Grow Rich did was allow me to write down the things I need to do to be where I want to be. And I was able to break it down into small bites. And my job that I have now was on that list of um, steps I need to take to be where I want to be. And I had a deadline for myself and everything. I was like, by 2020, I will be in XYZ position an XYZ organization. I was clear about what I wanted my job to look like, what I wanted my benefits to be. And so I started seeking that out, right? And I started believing that that was possible for me. And um, what I did was read up, read a lot of my goals every single night, um, slept with it by my bedside, like I said. And here I am in my dream job. Um, mm -hmm. You know, some people might, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Some people might credit that. There we go. Credit that to, um, you know, divinity, prayer, the universe, manifestation, whatever it is for you, I think that the, the exercise, the practice is what's really important. And and mm -hmm. certainly that book led me to that practice. So I would suggest mm -hmm. that. For you, mm -hmm. 
I just have to say, so thank you for sharing that resource. But also, like, your drive is incredible. Like, your drive is motivating. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate it. You know, I got to say, though, a part of it is, like, if I don't drive the boat, um, (laughs) you know, it goes down. I don't have a safety net. So, like, my my plan A is my plan A. There's no plan B. So that's why you see me go so hard about plan A. Um, Because, you know... Unlike some other folks that really have the room to play around um, and they may be okay if things fall apart, that is not my situation. So um, yes, it's important to me to work hard um, um, so that so that I'm okay. So I appreciate I appreciate you acknowledging that. Is there anything else you want to share with our audience? Oh, stay encouraged, be yourself authentically. Black Lives Matter. Um, we are living in a heightened state. Um, yeah, that, that is how I have a lot to say about that. But I will say that we are, a lot is being exposed that we need to be aware of, that we need to be actively uh, working toward dismantling. And I'm just to name it, it's talking about racial justice, of course. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I really encourage all the folks listening to do their part. Um, people's lives depend on it. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Megan. Thank you for listening to Real Stories. The resources referenced by today's guest speaker will be included in the episode description. For more information about me, Dr. Megan Corredo, and my work with the story's trauma narrative intervention, please visit my website, www.storiesguide.com. Also, feel free to follow my story social media pages on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Remember that for every story of trauma and adversity, there is always a story of strength and resilience.